I'm glad it's fall, man. I'm just here to tell you. Okay. We're going to start a study of Hebrews. And so today I'm going to kind of give us a little background. We'll kind of get us in there. And hopefully we'll get into this pretty deep because the first few verses alone are unbelievable. And this is going to be a New Testament. I know, I know, we're Old Testament class. I've been in the Old Testament for years. When I told Robbie this past week, we were in sermon prep, and I told him I was going to be doing Hebrews. And he was like, what? You're in the New Testament? I said, I know. But it's a Hebrew word, and it was written to the Hebrew people. So, so, but as irony would have it, yes, it's written to the Hebrew people, but it's also some of the most perfectly written Greek ever recorded. So it's... It's going to be a, a fun one for me, so because I'm more of a I know some Greek, but I'm more of a Hebrew guy. But in any event, uh, it's going to be a New Testament study, but we're going to do it through Hebrew lenses. We're going to do it as the audience that he might have been writing to, um, and that's just because that's the way I understand better. You know what I'm saying? Hebrews chapter one. Go there if you're not there. Hebrews chapter one. Um, verse 3. You remember how we had the uh, verse with David? This is going to be our theme verse for this whole study. It is Hebrews 1 3. It says, He, talking of Jesus, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature, and He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That is the most awesome statement. Well, let me tell you something. You want a great passage to memorize? This right here Hebrews 1 1 to 3 or 1 to 4. I mean, wow. An amazing statement. Many of y'all may have heard Chauncey's stories of coming back from Southeast Asia, but one of the stories he tells, he was walking around the island, and they had been walking for quite a while, and they stumbled, you know, this is an unreached, unengaged people group, and they stumbled on some missionaries they found there. And these missionaries, first contact they had had uh, outside of the indigenous people, in over a year, and they were telling, Brian told me that they were exhausted, and they were wore out, and they were ready to, ready to leave. They were actually preparing to leave the island because they were lonely, and they were tired, and they were exhausted. And they saw this as such a miracle that here come these two guys literally walking up to them, also missionaries, and it encouraged them to stay. And that's kind of what we're looking at here. These people in this study of Hebrews, they're having a crisis of faith. This whole book is really a crisis of faith. They're, they're, they put their faith in Jesus, but now they're starting to wonder because everybody around them is really coming after them. Why are you abandoning what you once believed? And they're having a hard time defending it. And they're really about ready to quit. And the writer of Hebrews is a lot like me. He doesn't have a lot of mercy. He's more like thumping them in the face. And that's, really, that's a lot like I am. Um, Molly and I were cutting up about that. I, I don't have a, I have some, but I don't have a whole lot of mercy. I, I'm more of a suck it up kind of guy. You know what I'm saying? And that's really what I think Hebrews is really doing. He's not going, bless your heart. Let me just pray for you and rub your shoulders. He's like, put on your boots and your helmet and shut up. It's kind of what he's saying. Uh, not really, but Dave translation. But they are having their identity challenged. The fact that they're believing in Jesus to challenge their identity. Let me share this with you. It's pretty interesting. Many years ago, a man conned his way into the orchestra of the emperor of China, although he couldn't play a note. Whenever the group practiced or performed, he would hold his flute against his lips, pretend to play, but not making a sound. He received a modest salary and enjoyed a comfortable living. Then one day, the emperor requested a solo from each musician. Flutus got nervous. There wasn't enough time to learn the instrument, so he pretended to be sick, but the royal physician wasn't fooled. On the day of his performance, 
The imposter took poison and killed himself. The explanation of his suicide led to a phrase that found its way into the English language. He refused to face the music. That's where that phrase comes from. And that's really what the book of Hebrews is doing. It's calling these people to face the music. He's not really challenging are they authentic. He's saying if you are authentic, face it. You are changed. You are new. You don't need this. Don't give up. Don't go back. Don't turn around. So what is it they're struggling with? I know what their, what their big struggle is. If they're Jews, what do you think they're struggling with? That's right. They're trying to play. He said they're trying to put the Jewish customs into the new covenant. And that's really what it is. They're struggling with, well, you know what? We're always raised going to the temple. We're always raised going to the priest. We're always raised making the sacrifice for our sins. Now, all of a sudden, yes, we believe in Jesus. Yes, we trust him. But aren't we still supposed to go to the temple? Shouldn't we still go see the priest? I mean, he's still there. Shouldn't we still offer sacrifices? What they did, the old covenant required two major things. One was that a priest go into God's presence and make intercession for the people one day a year. You know what it was? Yom Kippur, one day a year. We just had it. September 25th was this year. So Yom Kippur, one day a year, the priest is invited to go behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and offer atonement for the people. And this priest had to be perfect or as close as possible. I'm talking like blemishless everything. As much like Adam, a pure man, as he could be. And even still, he'd have to purify himself for eight, I think eight days, seven or eight days. And then he was allowed to go. But even at that, they tied a rope around his feet with bells so that if he fell out, if God struck him dead, they'd hear the bells jingle, know he was down. And then drag him out because nobody else could go in if he wasn't holy or pure enough. It's a lot like what happened with Adam, right? God cast Adam and his wife out of his presence, out of the Garden of Eden, out of his presence. But one day a year, God would invite Adam back into his presence. One day a year. It was symbolism of something that was coming. But when he came into God's presence, he had to offer atonement for the people's sins. And he did that by blood, a blood sacrifice. And we'll talk a lot about all of this because this is what Hebrews really goes into. But he'd offer a blood sacrifice. He had to come in and do that. And it, they would kill an animal, a bull, a goat, uh, even down to a bird. You know, they would sacrifice some kind of animal, usually a bull or a goat or a lamb. And that would make peace with God for the people for another year. Now, there was a big problem with this. A couple of big problems. What are they? What's the big problem with the priest going behind the veil once a year? Two, two big problems with that, really. One, he only went once a year. What about the rest of the time? Two, is any man perfect? No. So as good as the high priest was, he was still not perfect. Otherwise, they wouldn't have had to tie rope around him just in case. He wasn't perfect. What's the problem with the sacrifices? Huh? It's only for the year? That's another one. What else? Let me tell you something. If I cheated on my wife... And then I said, you know what? I really messed up. I killed our dog here. I'm sorry. 
You know, I know it sounds ridiculous. It was ridiculous. It, there's no, and, and it's quoted throughout Scripture. Isaiah says it. Several of Jeremiah, I believe, says it. The blood of bulls and goats will never satisfy God for man's sins. Why? Because man's sin, not the animal. The animal, the point of the sacrifice was to point you to the fact, remind you of how ugly your sin is in God's eyes. And remind you of how much it cost. So that one day there would be a sacrifice that would mean something significant to you, which we're not, we'll get to that. But we'll talk more about that too as we get into this. You know, they come to this temple, they come to this tabernacle, all these things are models. They're just models of heaven. Think about this. The temple, you ought to study it. Joey's been reading through it, and I know it's rough reading through Leviticus and Numbers and stuff like that. But the reason there's so much detail given to that God, do you realize God designed the tabernacle and the temple completely? I mean, he told them exactly how to build it. And the reason why is because it's a replica of a heavenly temple. It's a model of a heavenly temple. I'm kidding. Go read Revelation. It's a model of a heavenly temple. It's not, God doesn't literally sit there in that temple, but it's a replica of it. In heaven, he does sit in a temple. And one day, people will stand before that. Just like there's priests here on earth, there'll be a priest, a priest there in that temple in heaven. Um, That's models as well. But man can't actually go into the presence of God in heaven. As you are, anyway. Can't do it. That's why it's a model here on earth. Because you can't do it. Why can't you do it? Why can't we go into God's presence we're not perfect. We're sinful people. You can't just walk into God's presence full of sin. It won't happen. You think I'm kidding? You don't have to go there. Maybe just make a note of it. I'm going to read it to you. Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. It's heavy. In the earthly temple, God is veiled. Holy of holies, big veil. Only one man gets to go back there one time a year. In the heavenly kingdom, he's not veiled. But here's what's amazing. What did Jesus do? Excuse me. What did Jesus do to that veil? Right? You can read it. Go to Matt. Don't go. Just let me read it to you. Matthew 27. Make a note. Matthew 27, verse 50. When Jesus dies... Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple, which covered the Holy of Holies, was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, this is one reason why in Leviticus and Numbers it goes into such detail describing this, this temple veil. Go read it and then you tell me how that thing ripped in half from top to bottom. No way that would have torn. You couldn't have probably cut it with a, with a knife. Much less top to bottom. Go look how tall it was. All right? Ripped in half from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And you may not know this. This is a crazy verse. Go study it. This is a good study. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who were dead were raised. 
And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the city and appeared to many. How'd you like to see that? Uh, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, What? Truly, this was the Son of God. It's pretty amazing. He is the Son of God. He is God. And He tore that veil and He made a way possible where not one time a year, not one perfect man, but all men through that priest can now, the priest Jesus Christ, can now go access and be in the presence of God. That's mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. But as my brother said, it's not a new teaching. They act like it's, we call it the new covenant, like, oh, you have the Old Testament, but then, hey, in 0 AD, we have the new covenant. No, you have the fulfillment of the new covenant in 0 AD. The new covenant is given to you in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, actually it's given to you multiple places, but it's defined real well in Jeremiah 31, 31, where God says, I will write my laws on your hearts. I know you can't follow my law. I know you can't come make all these sacrifices. I know you can't keep doing all this. I know you keep sinning. So I'm going to write my law on your heart. And I won't hold your sins against you. That's a crazy, crazy thing. And these guys act like it's new, but it's not. It's the same covenant that was spoken of. It's just been fulfilled. So what Hebrews is referring to, and you're going to see this several times, is this phrase, better things. Especially, I think ESV uses it a lot, NIV uses it a lot. Better things. But we have a better thing, or better things, whatever, constantly there. What it really means, just so you know, because we'll see it a lot, is supremacy. It doesn't mean, well, you know, it's all right, it's better than what we have. It's not that. It is, this is the supreme, overall, number one, best thing, completely. Hebrews is written to encourage, listen, these are some of the things you're going to see in this. Hebrews is written to encourage that, listen, this is why we're calling it Jesus is. Jesus is God. Jesus is ruler of all. Angels, mankind, all creation. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is high priest. Jesus is the greatest prophet. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the temple. Jesus is the revelation of God. Jesus is the fulfillment of all scripture. Jesus is the only intercessor for mankind. Jesus is the new covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is dot, dot, dot. He is everything. Everything. And that's the amazing thing about Hebrews. That's what it's going to show us. So, who wrote? Uh, uh, I know. I got caught in the door, Ryan and I, discussing it in the door. We're not going to have this debate because this is a long one. There's a lot of different opinions. The, uh, the, the old school train of thought uh, the, was Paul. That's pretty much been... Erased. Most people now don't believe it to be Paul at all. Uh, Catholic Bible probably still going to show it as Paul. I have one at home. But most people don't believe it to be Paul now. A lot of people believe it to be Barnabas because he was a Levite. So he would be real familiar with Levitical law and stuff like that. And in Acts, he's called an apostle. So it's a good argument. Good argument. Um, there's also a huge argument, big, big argument, especially nowadays, that it's Luke. Some say they think Luke was writing for Paul. And so it's Paul's thoughts, Luke's words, but I don't buy that. So I think Luke would have written down exactly what Paul said. But it could be Luke. Your pastor thinks it's Luke. 
Um, there's several that do. Reggie, uh, who I often quote, brilliant Hebrew scholar, he thinks that it could have been Priscilla. And that's another popular line of thought. She was with Paul, but she was a she. And so a she would not have been taken seriously as the author of a Hebrew book. So he thinks maybe she remained anonymous. And actually, every commentary I looked that listed possible authors, that was one of them. So he's not necessarily unique in thinking that. But we're not going to have that because who ultimately wrote the book of Hebrews? Holy Spirit, God. Yes, exactly. So we're, that's who wrote it. If you ask me who wrote Hebrews, I'll say God. Okay? Date. This is awesome. We don't know exactly, but there's some context clues that give us an idea, and it's pretty crazy. In 95 AD, Clement of Rome quotes this book. So we know it had to be, and history records that. So we know it has to be before 95 AD. There's also, in Hebrews 13, 23, there's a reference to Timothy. So we know Timothy's still alive. There's no reference to Paul, and assuming he didn't write it, it's likely Paul's dead, because it probably wouldn't have referenced Timothy and not made some reference to Paul. So there's a good chance that Paul was dead. We also know, because it references the sacrificial system, look here in Hebrews, turn to chapter 8 real quick. Chapter 8, look at verse 4. It says, don't worry, about, don't worry about the whole context of it, just let me point something out here. It says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Look, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. So there's still priests and they're still offering sacrifices. So that means what? Temple's still standing. So it has to be before 70 AD because the temple's still standing. All right. Now look at verse 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and is ready to vanish away. How prophetic a statement is that? Most likely this book was written around 68, 69 AD. What happens in 70 AD? Temples destroyed. Permanently wiped off, destroyed. How prophetic a book He's writing this book to them and saying, hey, don't turn back to all this sacrifice and stuff that's going on. That covenant is about to, is going to pass away. Little did he know, it's going to pass away in like a year. Furthermore, how long has it been roughly? We don't know exactly, but about how long has it been since Jesus was on the earth? If this was written in 68 AD, how long has it been since Jesus was on the earth? 30, 40 years, right? So it is highly likely that there were a bunch of people at the time that still, that were there, that were alive during Jesus' time that could have validated or contradicted this if it were not true. It's pretty interesting. And that brings me to the audience. We, you know, there's debate about that too. It could have been Israel. It could have been North Africa. But probably one of the things that's stirring it, if you go to Israel, our Israel team's there this week. I don't know when, but one day this week, they'll actually visit it. But you can go to the Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were written. There was a group of radical Jews called the Essenes that started this uh, community of the Qumran. And that little community actually goes all the way back to like the 8th century B.C. Uh, Joshua quotes it in his book or notes it. It's been around a long time that community, that community had. And these Essenes, what they did is they moved out into the desert because they wanted to be radically devoted to the law. And they wanted to be perfect. 
and they wanted to be secluded, a lot like what modern-day monks do. They think they're being, or nuns to some degree, nuns are not as bad as monks, but they, they get away from the world and they try to be pure by separating themselves. Well, that's kind of what these guys were doing. And they were radical about their, their Jewish faith. And uh, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls come from. They produced good things because they copied those scrolls. That's the reason that we have them. But they were also, they didn't acknowledge Christ at all. And ironically, Rome destroys them. 68, 69 AD. Same time period that this book is being written. Wipes them off. So... And then Peter later would note, 1 Peter 1, you don't have to go there, but 1 Peter 1, 1, if you read the intro, 1 Peter 1, 1 is written to the dispersion or the exiled Jews dispersed throughout the kingdom. You can go read the intro there. But, but So by the time Peter's writing, they've been dispersed. They've been run out. Jerusalem has been crushed and they've been chased out. So... Back to Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. The message of this first chapter, and we're going to go through it just really, uh, not, not quickly, but this, today will be short because we'll be in just a few verses. Next week we'll take the rest of the chunk. But the first half is written that Christ is superior to the prophets. The second half that Christ is superior to angels. So we'll talk about angels next week. I was going to jump all this at once, but I wanted to talk about angels for a little while. So maybe we'll focus on that for a minute. But the message is that Christ is superior to prophets. And Christ is superior angel. So look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Make a couple observations. Number one, he has made himself known. He's made himself known. Hold your finger. Go over to Acts 17. Acts 17, verse 24. It says... The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. That builds right on what we've been talking about. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. We've mentioned this passage before, but guess what? God doesn't need you. He chooses to use you. He does not need you. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath, big word, and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God knew exactly where you were going to live before you were born. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each of us. He is present in this world point. He is not a God that made an earth and went, spun it and wandered off like deists say, like atheists. I mean, uh, not atheists. What's the other one? believe there's a God, but you can't know him. Agnostic. Thank you. Yeah, like deists and agnostic believe that he spun the world, but he's not part of it. Um, Deists would say there is a God. He's just not involved. Agnostic would say there could be a God, but he's definitely not involved. All right. I'm telling you, Acts 17 says he is involved. He is presently, actively involved in this world. He is here. And we have no excuse for not seeing him. Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God is plain or obvious or simple to them. Because God has shown it to them. You understand what that means? God has shown it to you. It's obvious. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived from the beginning of the world. How? In the things that he made. So they are without excuse. When you see a tree, here's what God's going to say. You stand before him, God, I didn't know there was a God. I didn't know there was a God. Okay, then how did the tree get there? Well, I don't know. You know, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Now, you might be blind to it. You might blind your eyes to it. You might ignore it. But I'm telling you right now, he's made himself obvious. Made himself obvious. Back in Hebrews. Even more so, what does it say he did? Look in verse 1. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. It says God did what? Spoke. He spoke. Listen to me. I may be radical, but if y'all been in my class for long, you know in, Hebrew, in, in, in the Old Testament, especially in the Hebrew language, when it says the word of God, the Lord came to so-and-so, I do believe in a lot of cases that is the son approaching somebody and physically speaking to them and saying, I want you to do this. Maybe I'm wrong. Oh, well. That's what I think. Uh, he spoke. I know he physically spoke to Abraham. I know he physically spoke to Jacob. I wrote a book a while back for my own good, not like, oh, I'm going to go get it published. I wrote a book, not that. I just started dumping my thoughts into paper, and it turned into a book. I made chapters and all that mess. But the title was, Does a Living God Speak or Am I Deaf? And that's the way I felt when I was writing it. I'm like, if he's a living God, he must speak. And if he speaks, why don't I hear him? And I wrestled through about ten chapters. I don't even know how many hundreds of pages of just dumping my thoughts out on how I felt. But I didn't really have an answer at the time. I got it now. But I didn't really have an answer at the time. He does speak. He has spoke. Past tense. It's gone on consistently. It's always gone on. He spoke to Adam. But not just, hey, random talk. He told Adam in Genesis 3.15 that Adam's wife's seed, which is weird, because women don't have a seed, but Adam's wife's seed would produce a Savior. Therefore, he told Adam, not just, hey, man, hope you're having a good time. I have a plan that's going to involve you. Then he spoke to Abraham, directly and indirectly. He spoke to Abraham. He spoke to Abraham indirectly, through Melchizedek. Y'all may not know who that is, but you're going to because there's a lot of Hebrews devoted to this character and that's going to be an amazing story when we get there. So, he spoke to him indirectly through this King Melchizedek. He also spoke to him directly. Uh, He told Abraham that this seed of woman that was promised to Adam would come through his lineage, would be one of his descendants. Then he spoke to Jacob in Genesis 49, told him, This Savior, this seed, this Savior would be from his tribe. Then he spoke to David. He spoke to David directly and indirectly. Primarily, by the time the kings got here, he started speaking through prophets. Samuel, we studied it in depth. Spoke through Samuel to David. Spoke through Nathan to David. And told David, this Savior, this seed is going to be a prince, a king from your line. Tribe of Judah, son of Abraham, son of Adam. Then he spoke to countless prophets, including Micah. And he told Micah, this king is going to be born in Bethlehem, of all places, not Jerusalem. And then he spoke to Isaiah, and he said, not only born in Bethlehem, but born of a virgin. 
He has spoke consistently throughout Scripture. And if you go back and you read it and you look, you'll see all kinds of different ways. Sometimes face-to-face, sometimes through a prophet, sometimes through visions like, like Isaiah had. Perhaps Isaiah was even there. I don't know. Sometimes Paul talks about being transported into the third heaven. Into, I don't, what is that about? Was he physically taken there? Was it spiritual? I don't know, but he was there. What about Daniel? Wow. And Joseph. Dreams, dreams, dreams. And Daniel, man, the dreams that that guy had. He's spoken, and I'm going to tell you something, is proven true. If you're here for the Daniel study, you know that. If you weren't, go back and listen to the podcast on some of that Daniel stuff. It's crazy, the truth that came through all that. He is for real. He is true. And he has spoken. He has spoken. And he still speaks. The big booming voice from heaven? No. But you ought to be thankful for that. I used to beg for that all the time. God, just say something. I, I just want to hear your voice. Go read what happened when he did that. He started out that way. He started out that way. He spoke that way to the Israelites from Mount Sinai. And you know what they said? Moses, make it stop. Moses, make it stop. Please make it stop. He spoke in the New Testament, too, over Jerusalem, out loud. And he said, this is my son. Listen to him. And what did the people say? Some said, could this be? Could this, could, could this be the son of God? Most people said, do you hear the thunder? Do I hear that thunder? It's interesting. He does still speak. But the problem is, again, he's up there. We're down here. That's the mental picture. He is involved, but he's in the trees. What does he look like? What does he want? What does he, you know, how come we can't know him, know him? He solved that problem. And he said, you can know all about me, but I want you to know me. So therefore, I will send my son, myself, that you will know me. John, don't go, just to make a note. John 17, 3. This is one of my favorite passages. And this is eternal life, that they know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You want to know what eternal life looks like? It's knowing Jesus. You cannot know God without Jesus. How do I know that? How do I know Jesus is the only way? I know, I know you got uh, John 14, 6, where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. Nobody comes except me. But what's another one? You might know Acts 4, 12. For there is no other name under heaven by which men may be saved. There's no other option. That's it. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. Nothing. No other choice. Why? Because he's God. He's the only way to know God. And this is the point of Hebrews. God has revealed himself in the most supreme way possible. He's coming to us in person himself. He's the, Jesus is the perfect expression of God. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And we're going to see that. Look at verse 2. We're just going to do the next two verses. We're done. Verse 2. But in these last, or it says latter days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, or everything. Not just all things, but everything. If it exists, 
He's, he's the heir to inherit those things through whom he also created or produced the world. The word world there is actually eon. You know what an eon is? You ever said that? You ever used that word before? It's ages. Yeah, he created the world, but he created time. He created the world. He created the universe. He created everything that has been, is, and will be. That's what it means. It's not as simple as the world. He's created ageless. In Hebrew, it would be olam to olam. It would be eternity to eternity. He's created everything that is, has been, and will be. He's created is what it's saying. It's a huge word. He's created the ages. And it says he's the heir. That's a pretty crazy word. How's he the heir if he created it? Well, we're going to get into some stuff that's going to blow your mind. That's all right. This passage might be blowing your mind. It blows mine. He's the heir. Listen, he's the heir because he will inherit everything. It will all come to him. He's the heir. He will inherit it because he's the rightful owner of it. He is the rightful owner of it because he created it. It's like a loop. But it's true. He created it. He's the rightful owner, and so therefore he will inherit it. It will come to him, come back to him. All creation is under him. I'm going to read a couple of verses, make a note. Don't have time for you to turn. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by you, by your will, they existed and were created. Psalm 33.6 says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and listen, by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. Job 12.10, in his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. You hear what I'm saying to you? The fact that you're breathing right this second is in his hand. You realize all he's got to do is just yank the oxygen out and we're done. What keeps the oxygen in here? Ozone layer or whatever. What do you think? He's holding your breath in his hand. He didn't just spin it and leave. He's still involved. He's holding your breath in his hand. Job 34, 14 says, If he should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. That's pretty crazy. He is involved. He is involved. Look at verse 3, Hebrews Chapter 1. He is the radiance or like the brightness, the lightning. That's the way I look at it. He's the lightning, the flash of the glory of God and the exact imprint or character of his nature. Literally it's saying he is the exact character of God's essence. That's that's really a, a strong way to look at it. He is the flash that is God's glory. And he's the exact imprint, the character of the essence of God. What, what does that mean? Brian, Clinton, help me out, brother. <laughs> that is nuts. It is the exact, exact character and imprint of God. The essence of what God is. Guys, He is God. There are no two gods. And there's no man that is the exact essence of and the exact character and the glorious radiance of God, not possible. Unless there's two gods. And there are not. God made himself into man. You're going to hear Robbie talk about this today. Made himself into man. Look at this. After making 
or excuse me, uh, of his nature, and he upholds the universe with the word of his power. I told you that already. He's literally holding it together, even then. After making, after, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Literally, he is the only purification for sin, and he's seated at the right hand. Well, wait a minute. If he's God, how's he seated at the right hand? I know. I know. I can't answer it. I can't draw you a picture, but I can tell you it's the, it's the truth. You know how? Look at this. Listen. Don't go. Don't have time. John 1.36. John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When he sees Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This Lamb is what we're talking about right here. He made purifications for sin. In Revelation, John says, in Revelation 7.9, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. They're before the throne and the Lamb. But watch this in verse 17 of the same chapter. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne, or in the center of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. He is seated on that throne, standing on that throne, beside that throne. He is God. How can he be all God, seated on the throne, standing beside the throne? How can he be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet there be one God? I know, man, I know. I'm not him, so I can't tell you. But I can tell you it's true. And I can show you countless places in Scripture that explain it that way. And ultimately, if you don't buy that, then you got two gods. And we have a problem. We have a big problem. Let me finish with this. All authority is placed under him. He makes that really clear. I'll give you some verses. Isaiah 9, 6. You know this one. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. By the way, there's another one. You ever read that? Everlasting what? Father. The Son is called Everlasting Father. A little twist there. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Romans fourteen nine. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. 1 Peter three twenty two. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, having been subjected to him. And then Philippians 2, 9. Robbie will share with you today. I'm not going to take the punchline. You can hear him share it. All things are under his authority. All things. All worlds. Aliens included. You believe in aliens? Whatever. They're under his authority. Okay? All things are under his authority. All time is under his authority. All dimension is under his authority. I'm not trying to get supernaturally weird and crazy, but if, if you're telling me that there's angels present among us and we don't see them, that would be a description of a dimensional thing. So, all dimensions are under his authority. Everything is under his authority. Listen to this last verse, Colossians 1.16, and we're going to use this passage a lot. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And this is why the psalmist can say, let everything that has breath, what? Praise the Lord. In that passage in six verses, it says praise 13 times. Praise the Lord. You want your walking point for today? 
That's it. Praise the Lord. It's amazing. 